0: Good morning. Good morning, everyone. I'm John Schreiber, and uh, welcome to uh, Ask the Experts. Welcome to Connecticut, Massachusetts, whoever else is tuning in this morning. We have a lot to talk about, and we're also very lucky that the Connecticut Department of Education will be chatting on our second half of the talk today, so I know there are a lot of questions for them. Uh, there's a lot to talk about with uh, COVID updates. I wish there weren't, but there are. And uh, let's start off by talking about the United States and uh where we are with um, Delta at the moment. And you can see there's a pretty intense uh, outbreak in Michigan and actually the upper Midwest, Minnesota, and uh, the Northeast now as well. The Southern states uh, burn through Delta and at the moment are quiescent, but uh, markedly under immunized. And uh, we may see lots more cases there shortly. And you can see we're in the fifth resurgence now, and it, it, there's a dip on the far right. That's probably Thanksgiving when things weren't reported. Um, and uh, right now it's muted. Um, there are less deaths and hospitalizations, particularly in the well-immunized states. This is great news. The vaccines work, uh, and I'll talk about Connecticut. We're a pretty graphic example of that, and so. Uh, You know, it's not great news in that we are resurging. You uh, can—I don't think my pointer is working today—but you can see in the far right, it's gone up quite a bit, almost almost to where it was in the peak in August. So, um, but right now, muted in that the hospitals in the immunized states, highly immunized states, are relatively manageable. Now you can see uh, this is daily trends in deaths in the United States and. What we've got here also shows that the death rate, despite surges on parts of the country, again, have stayed relatively low. I mean, it's you know almost 1,000 a day, which is nothing to write home about, but it's not nearly as bad as in other peaks. And we're optimistic that heavy immunization will continue to mute the death rate. And again, that's the classic success of a vaccine. Connecticut winter resurgence is accelerating. You may remember the map I showed you a couple of weeks ago that was, you know, pretty light yellow, and there wasn't much around. The entire state's got community spread now, and in fact, it was it's a five and a half percent test positivity rate that's going up. So um, we have a lot of community spread all through the state right now, and and everyone needs to be cognizant of that. Um, I think if you're highly immunized, the likelihood of getting seriously ill is low. It's not zero but it's low. If you're boosted, it's less. Uh, But, uh, you know, we are going to start seeing some more hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, I don't think it's going to be nearly as bad as Michigan, which I'll show you in a minute. And you'll see our death rate again, despite the community spread I just showed you, which is widespread in Connecticut, is muted. And it's based on our immunization rate. Uh, Again, these are just facts. These are the data you wish you could Just have people look at this dispassionately and say, oh, my God, i got to immunize my state because this will work. But unfortunately, there's a lot of churn still politically and and, uh, just is what it is. But uh, the Connecticut immunizations have worked. We have a lot of community spread. But compared to other peaks, other surges, our death rate remains very muted. And our hospitalizations, I don't have that for you, but our hospitalizations are a few hundred. Back in the last surge, last winter was a few thousand. So we've got a lot less hospitalizations and many less deaths in Connecticut despite community spread. And this may be the new normal for us. We have a highly immunized population, we have a bad flu that goes around and most people don't get very sick and the death rate is low and, and that would be something we could live with. If you look at immunization coverage in Connecticut, this just got presented by DPH yesterday. Uh, you'll see that um, at 75, go to the bottom of it, 75 and above, uh, we have 95%, at least one dose, and almost 90% are fully immunized in the elderly. So you're, you're at 90% immunization uh, in elderly, which is quite good. We've done pretty well now, though. If you go to 12 and above, we're at 80% of the state in that category are fully vaccinated. Those are excellent numbers. We fall, you know, the 5+, plus. we're just rolling that out the last few weeks, and, and it's moving very quickly in Connecticut. And so, you know, these are very good numbers, unfortunately not duplicated by all of the rest of the country, but this is why we're having a muted surge. Uh, despite a lot of transmission, not a lot of very, very sick people in the ICU, and we knock on wood on that. Now, this is the United States. And, you know, there's a lot of media about how it's terrible and all this. So the reality is, it's really not bad. We have almost 200 million people are fully vaccinated in the country. It's a tremendous achievement. I'm not sure we've ever achieved that in so short of time. And you can see, if you go to the population in the middle, 12 years and above, about 70% of the United States is fully immunized. And that's not bad, it needs to be better. But it's, again, I don't think it's as bad as the media drumbeat. And I'm optimistic if, uh, I'll talk about Omicron in a minute, if that sweeps the country, I'm optimistic those who are immunized are unlikely to get seriously ill. So you know again we could do better but it's not terrible and this uh shows um the uh booster doses and um percent of the us population on booster doses and and so who you know we're we're going to need to do better than that so this shows um I'm, I'm sorry this shows at least one dose of vaccination in the united states and it's like 80% makes you think it's really good the problem is one dose doesn't work as well as two doses and a booster so You know, again, I I like to go back to this slide, which shows you the fully immunized. I don't think showing data on one dose makes any sense now. So um, this is the map of immunizations in the United States, and you can see we have serious under-immunization in the Southeast. They are very vulnerable to Omicron. I I anticipate it will sweep through that area of the country, unfortunately. I think we're already seeing um, in the Northeast, we already have Omicron here, and anecdotally, immunized people are not getting very sick. So I think um, this immunization rate in the Northeast being quite high, I'm optimistic will play out in a muted resurgence as, as this sweeps the country. So now um, let's focus on Michigan where it's not Connecticut. It's an under-immunized state. They, they are in an absolute rampage right now, 10,000 cases a day. It's starting to drift down now but it's been a terrible situation in Michigan. And um, if you look at daily new hospital admissions, uh, a huge number that all the ICUs are filled, particularly in the Northern part of Michigan, you'll see that top line are actually elderly. So it's the elderly, and that's uh, 70 and above, and 60 and above are the two highest curves of those who are being hospitalized. And so once again, that population is vulnerable and in an underimmunized climate will end up in the hospital and there'll end up being deaths. That said, if you look at the younger age groups, 30 to 59, they're also hospitalization rates creeping up. And I, I think again, there's this um, misunderstanding that young people don't get sick and it's just fine. Young people do get sick, it's just less frequent than old people. So a 40-year-old can end up in the ICU and die. It's not that it doesn't happen. It's just less frequent than an 80-year-old. And I think, as I I mentioned to the team here, I walked into Starbucks this morning, grabbed a coffee on the way here. I had my mask on. Most of the, all the servers had their mask on. Most of the other people did not. And they were kind of young in their 40s. The problem is they are vulnerable to get seriously ill. It's just less frequent than elderly. So I I wish people would wear masks indoors right now. Certainly um, that would help. This is hotspots in Michigan, you know, um, uh, the state is under siege and the hospital systems are struggling right now. This is not where we wanna be as a country and an under immunized state. Now let's talk about vaccine induced immunity. Uh, again, in the media, there's a, a, a lot of sure and well, you know, I don't need to get the vaccine. If I get a mild illness, I'll be immune. It's gonna be great. And I don't need any vaccine. The reality is the data show that the waning immunity after natural infection, it wanes faster than vaccine, and you're susceptible to get reinfected. And certainly with a variant, you will be susceptible to get reinfected. The CDC uh, has some sites for you on their website about how unvaccinated people who are previously infected uh, have a fast fall off in immunity. Now, here's a paper that actually documents this. Um, This is preprint and it's not been peer reviewed. but it's actually the data look quite good, and I'm sure this will be in press shortly. They looked at COVID-19 convalescent patients over time, 12 months, and what they define, I wanna look at E. You'll look on the variant, which is B16172 on the far right on E, that's Delta. So after 12 months, there's only 16% of those people are protected against Delta who had natural infection. So, okay. Everybody needs to wrap their arms around. If you had a natural infection, it's mild illness, you're not gonna be protected in six to 12 months. Get immunized. So these are the data. I I don't care what's out there in the media uh, and politicians and whoever, the data show if you're naturally infected, you will have waning immunity. And particularly against Delta, after a year, uh, a minority of people will be protected with neutralizing antibody, okay? So those are the data. Um, So if you've been infected and are not immunized, get immunized uh, after a few months because you are not gonna be protected. Now, I don't know anything about Omicron. Uh, that could be worse, we don't know. So, uh, you know, these are very important data. Now, what's new with the antivirals? There's, there's a lot of uh, churn about that. Pfizer just got, um, I'm sorry, Merck uh, just got approved. So there are two of them out there. The mm-hmm. Pfizer oral antiviral includes this retinavir, which is used for HIV. It blocks viral proteases that degrade their other protease inhibitors, two protease inhibitors, and they, they sort of synergize with each other. And that's in your top uh, graph there. It shows that it interferes with viral protein production, and the virus can't, can't uh, perform right, and it works. And so the Pfizer vaccine, uh, the data showed only um, 3 of 389 people who were treated got hospitalized compared to 27 in the placebo group. And um, uh, they actually had to stop the study because it was so efficacious, it wasn't ethical to continue the study. That one is not FDA licensed yet, but it will be. And it, it, the efficacy was quite good. Now the Merck eff- efficacy is a different its a different virus uh, inhibitor. It inhibits RNA replication, that's on the bottom one where I showed you how Merck works. And in their initial study, they had a 50% reduction in hospitalization, but it had new data they presented and it dropped to about 30, 35%. And and I I don't really know where that's gonna go. And right now it looks like the Pfizer antiviral has better efficacy. So we need to watch this. They're gonna be out there. They're gonna be a great tool for us to use, but they're not gonna be a magic bullet. They'll be a great tool. And right now the Pfizer oral antiviral appears to have better efficacy. We'll have to follow that and see. Now, what about um, the Publication of the data of kids. Remember, we had a lot of preprints and then we had the drug company come out and show us the data. This got published in the New England Journal a couple of weeks ago of the evaluation of the Pfizer vaccine in kids 5 to 11. I think it's really important we know these data so we can look parents in the eye and tell them this is what we know. So these are the side effects of the vaccine and you can see it's mostly pain in the injection site there really were very few um, serious problems uh, in their group of children, uh, five to 11, who were immunized uh, with the Pfizer vaccine. And and it's in the New England Journal, you can pull this up and look better. A pain at injection site really seemed to be the big one. But there's some other soreness and, and fatigue was another big one, headaches, uh, and they went away in a day or so. So um, the side effects seem very similar to what you see in adults, actually somewhat, somewhat less. And then if you look at neutralization antibodies, the titers made 5 to 11, which is 1,000, was very similar to young adults, 16 to 25. So it's just as immunogenic at a lower dose. See, they're only getting 10 micrograms, but it's just as good in young children as the larger doses in adults and adolescents. So really seems to be very immunogenic at a lower dose in children. And here's the data. So the bottom red is those who are immunized and the blue is those who got placebo and that's cumulative incidence of getting COVID. So You can look at this graph, it works, okay? Most of the kids immunized don't get COVID. And it's like 90% efficacy. It's as good as any vaccine you're ever gonna see. So uh, very little side effects, tremendous efficacy in prevention, good titers, very similar to lower dose in kids, very similar to what you get in older kids and adults. So. These are the data. I think it's very important we show them to our parents um, and uh, just get facts out there as opposed to all the other stuff in the media. Waning immunity, I mentioned, but we're getting more and more data on this. This is Israeli data. And what I want to focus on here is uh, this is um, severe disease where I have the arrow at the bottom and the incidence of severe disease in age 60 after six months from Pfizer vaccine. So you can see the dark blue is six months, and then they, they presented the data weird. The far right is two months. So when you hit six months, which is the dark bar, you start getting a lot of breakthrough infections in um, that age group, 60 and above, uh, who end up very sick. That's why Israel really pushed those boosters out quite early, and that's why the rest of the world is doing the same thing. And in fact, countries are racing to do this, get the boosters out before the winter, uh, based on those data, and Israel is ahead of the whole world. They have about 80% of eligible people have already gotten their booster. Belgium, the UK, and the United States is lagging a bit. Although I heard uh, on the news this morning that all of a sudden there's this huge bump in um, initial vaccinations and boosters because I think people are watching the news and getting concerned. So I think we're going to catch up. But this booster this winter is very important. If you've not gotten your booster in your six months after your second dose or two months after J&J, Get boosted. Uh, the data initially from South Africa show that vaccination is going to protect you against Omicron. So you got to run with that. Uh, and those are the data. Now, what about uh, testing positive uh, for COVID after your booster? In other words, uh, what are the odds that a booster works? We don't have a lot of data. The booster seems to be uh, helping, but what what are the data on that? And this is an early study uh, showing, um, also from Israel showing that if you got your booster, which would be 28 days in the bottom, if you're 28 days after your booster, your likelihood of getting a positive COVID test is really, really low compared to no booster where it was 6% of the people, they had a lot of COVID spreading around. So boosters are really reducing the odds of testing positive. We obviously have to get a lot more data on boosters because we're just launching it, but the initial data looked like it's very effective in preventing acquisition of COVID. So um, we'll we'll keep watch on this, but these are early data from the country that's boosted the most, which is Israel. Now let's talk about the variant. Um, it's out there in the news. Uh, it's now called B one one five two nine, Omicron. Uh, I give South Africa an enormous amount of credit for two reasons. One is their public health infrastructure picked this variant up quite early. Uh, And they have good public health infrastructure, and so they're they're doing genotyping of SARS-CoV routinely. They picked it up, and they published it and publicized it to the world immediately. It didn't help them economically because everybody banned travel to South Africa, but it, it was the right thing to do, and I give South African government and their public health infrastructure a lot of credit for that, as all of us should. I want to show you, this is the Goteng province in south africa on the right that turned really within two weeks just took off Uh, they've never seen anything like it and even more than delta just spread so fast and when you look at, at that province that's turning red and yellow it's all omicron so it's a new variant so the new variant is incredibly contagious and and it just wiped through this entire province very quickly now by now it's now december but the entire country of South Africa is yellow and red and it's all Omicron, so it's spread through the whole country quite quickly. We need to watch this because it's going to happen here. And, you know, we need to learn from this and be prepared. It uh, doesn't mean that a lot more people are going to get sick. We don't know yet. And in fact, anecdotally, on the bottom, I say anecdotally, the clinical illness so far appears to be mild. And they interviewed a South African um, public health official this morning on NPR. Heard it and. Um, he said that at the moment, uh, they're not seeing a lot of people hospitalized, but most of the people in the area where he was practicing are immunized. Um, and the hospitalizations that he is seeing are all unimmunized people. So this is very important for us to wrap our ha- hands around is that Omicron is hospitalizing the unimmunized in South Africa. So I wouldn't wanna to listen to that if I lived in the States and I would get immunized now. Now would be the time, because probably gonna protect you from getting seriously ill. Now let's look at the molecular biology of this because it's really fascinating. This is Delta variant. You remember months ago I presented this to you and there's there's three or four key mutations that interact. The red is the spike protein of the virus and the blue is the ACE2 receptor. And there's um, some crucial mutations right at the interface with the ACE2 receptor that enhance binding. And there's some two or three other mutations compared to the original Wuhan strains. it was called B1617. That's Delta. So, you know, we're dealing with this and it was very, very contagious. This is Omicron. Now, Omicron has 10 times more mutations than Delta. It's got like 30 mutations and they're all over the place. And some of them are deletions. Some of them are definitely in the receptor binding domain to the ACE2 receptor. You can see all of that circle there. There's a lot of mutations there. And um, so we really don't fully understand what this is going to translate into clinical. We just don't know. Now, evolutionary, if you think about it, the virus really shouldn't kill its host because then it can propagate. And it's certainly possible that it's sacrificing virulence for contagiousness. We don't know, and we'll have to watch this. That would be the optimistic view on this that's possible. You'll also notice there's some new mutations on the spike There's some worry about um, whether uh, PCR tests could be affected. Quest Diagnostics just issued a bulletin yesterday saying they've tested their PCR and it's working in Omicron. So I think quickly we're going to need to make sure all our molecular tests work, but so far they look like they're fine, and we'll just have to keep watching that. So this is a very different virus uh, than Delta, and we're going to learn a lot about it in the coming weeks within two weeks. We're gonna know a lot about neutralizing antibody and post-vaccine titers, do they work, and, and all of that. We're gonna know all that fairly quickly. And again, in the meantime, the anecdotal data from South Africa suggest if you're immunized, you're protected from getting seriously ill from Omicron. So good news on that. However, the the downside of this mutant is that Regeneron has already realized that, remember, the monoclonals bind to two very specific sites, on uh, and um, on the spike protein. And it looks like those are probably uh, part of the mutation of Omicron. And Regeneron has already suggested that their monoclonals may not work, but they don't have data yet. So it's just something to think about. We're giving monoclonals, to, we gave a lot of monoclonals to kids, high risk kids last week. And as Omicron sweeps through, we're going to need to make a very careful uh, assessment of whether the Regeneron combination monoclonal is going to be effective or not. I don't know yet. But Regeneron's already worried and issued a bulletin about it. Let's talk about the crazy politics of the week. This week, it's less, let's bash on Tony Fauci. I I find it unfathomable. I mean, here's a guy who's 80 who should have really retired, and he's just 24-7 trying to reduce mortality, get people immunized, do the right thing. I mean, I, I just, it's unfathomable. So Rand Paul, a failed ophthalmologist, uh, is uh, day after day, for some reason, has a vendetta against Dr. Fauci, and you know he's not a scientist; he doesn't understand science like Rand Paul does, and it's just remarkable because, unfortunately, some people believe this, and uh, those of us who watch Dr. Fauci uh, and uh, who has been very relentless in just trying to save lives and uh, get facts out there uh you know just shake our heads it's really very sad it's deliberate i mean it's a way you can denigrate experts so that you can be the one to control people uh, and that's very sad um, here's a, another politician who uh is openly day after day uh, attacking dr fauci he should retire to florida uh you know um on television and just saying this over and over again and then finally uh, actually the worst uh i felt was uh, on this commentator uh, said that Dr. Fauci was essentially uh, the same as Joseph Mengele. Now, I'm going to read this to you, and I want to, you know, those of you who don't know who Joseph Mengele is, I will tell you. Uh, this is what this uh, commentator uh, said uh, There's no justification for putting people out of their jobs or forcing vaccine mandates for a disease that's very treatable and has uh, death rates that compare to seasonal flu. So those are both incorrect statements. It's not easy to treat when you're in the ICU, and it's not the same as seasonal flu, it has 10 times the mortality. So those are just incorrect statements. Uh, whether they're lies or the individual believes this, I can't tell you, but those are not true. And so in that moment, when you see in Dr. Fauci, this is what people say to me, that he doesn't represent science to them. He represents Josef Mengele, the Nazi doctor, who did experiments on Jews during the Second World War and in concentration camps, And I'm talking about people all over the world saying this. So, you know, them's fighting words uh, for me. And I'll say Josef Mengele was a captain in the SS at Auschwitz and a very well-trained physician who uh, um, uh, was a sociopath and uh, was the one who selected well from good. He would pick out children he thought healthy who would do experiments on. The rest would go to the gas chamber. He liked twins and he did vivisection on twins to compare results uh, he was very uh, focused on the Aryan race. He injected brown eyes with blue dye to see if you could make them blue. This is Joseph Mengele, and I think uh, the individual who said this either didn't know and is ignorant, uh, or is choosing a comparison that's unacceptable. And I think, again, uh, all of us need to look at this and be, um, I think, outraged, and at the same time try to support the public health infrastructure and Dr. Fauci and getting the right things done. But it's very sad. This is where we are in the media. And unfortunately, people who don't know the history, which is many people are not World War II era anymore. They're all gone. And, and those of us who were born up post-war are getting old, don't know the history and look at this. Oh, you know, the guy's a Nazi. They have no idea what, he, what they're talking about. And here's a guy who's devoted his life for new discovery and saving lives. So um, I, I needed to get that out there today. So the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, uh, yes, yeah, now winter 2021. Sorry, I didn't change the slide. There is a worldwide winter resurgence and it's in the u.s too however even though like in connecticut for example our infection rate looks like last winter our hospitalizations or deaths are way below that because we're so heavily immunized it works so i think those are the great news Uh, connecticut has widespread community spread be careful wear a mask indoors it really will help decrease transmission but at the moment if we can immunize more and more and boost those who need to get immunized. I think we're gonna weather this okay in heavily immunized states. Despite clear data showing COVID is more lethal than influenza, that immunization reduces mortality and hospitalization, we are out there day after day, some politicians issuing confusing anti-vaccination rhetoric uh, which is incorrect. And also now their claims that natural immunity is superior. I've shown you that is not correct. Those are the facts. So these are just things that are out there. Given waning immunity and now a new variant with anecdotal data suggesting the vaccine is preventing serious illness from it, booster doses are critical. If you haven't gotten yours and you're, you're due to get it, go get it, now is the time. And uh, and I think we're gonna weather this okay. It's gonna be critical to continue our common sales public health measures. I don't believe in lockdowns uh, right now. However, just common sense, if you walk into a building, and you don't know who half the people are, uh, you know, you probably wanna wear a mask. Uh, Outdoors, unlikely to have high risk. So, you know, you don't have to. So I think people need to uh, understand common sense public health measures will make a difference. Omicron so far does not appear to have enhanced virulence. Uh, And if it does spread widely, we may move to a place where there's an annual immunization booster, just like flu, that's updated based on the variants that are circulating in the world and I, I anticipate that's probably where we're going to head next year there'll be an annual booster based on which variants are circulating in the world the, at the time. So I'm going to stop now I know we have lots of questions but I'm really grateful that uh, the um, the Connecticut State Department of Education is with us today, and I'm handing the baton to them for a few minutes. Thank you very much.
1: Good morning everyone, thank you, Dr. Shriver. Um, My name is John Frassinelli, and I'm a division director at the State Department of Education. Um, And uh, pleased to be with you today. Uh, Great information, Dr. Shriver on on, uh, the trend in COVID. Um, We are certainly working closely with our State Department of Public Health um, on a daily basis around uh, the work that they're doing uh, to support immunizations currently in five to 11 year olds. Um, We're rolling out, we've we've rolled out approximately uh, 500 clinics uh, for immunizations in in school children in 5 to 11. Uh, That's happening over the course of this month. So, and um, for all of the participants here, really appreciate all of the work that you're doing to support uh, support that work. We're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to talk about um, our social, emotional, behavioral, uh, and wellness among our students and certainly our staff um, in school districts. Um, the pandemic not only has certainly a, a physical health impact, but, but we know the isolation that's occurring in students, the, the concerns around, you know, having to quarantine as a result of being in close contact with, uh, with someone with a case of COVID uh, is weighing on families and certainly weighing on, uh, weighing on our students uh, and subsequently our staff one of the things we're hearing is that because the pandemic has now spanned uh, basically over three school years, uh, the behavior of students, and some of this you've seen in the news certainly around uh, some bad behavior that's occurring in schools, Um, but what superintendents of schools are telling us is is that students who would normally have matured over the last couple of years have, are not, are, are not understanding what behavior. So things like uh, freshmen who have spent the last two years, uh, you know, under COVID, um, have not been able to learn from their, from their peers in the upper grades around, around what's appropriate behavior. So we're seeing, uh, you know, 11th graders that are, you know, that are acting like new freshmen. We're seeing, uh, second, second graders that are acting like kindergartners. So developmentally certainly is a challenge for them. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about what we're doing. Uh, and if I could have the next slide, we'll continue on. Thank you so much. So my name is John Frasinelli. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm a division director in, in the areas of school health and nutrition and family services and adult ed. I'm joined by my colleague, uh, Kim Traverso, uh, who is a, a former school counselor, works in a, a number of areas, including social emotional school wellness, uh, school, uh, school discipline, um, and, school, and works with school counselors directly. So next slide. So, what we'd like to cover today uh, is a summary of what the Commissioner Charlene Russell Tucker's state vision and plan around this work, um, around supporting uh, students and staff uh, behaviorally, um, defining and understanding why social emotional learning is is necessary, um, examining steps of how we're building a foundation in schools around social emotional learning, um, and and how how we are. This is not a, a one off. A, a plug-and-play. This is social-emotional learning is uh, developing systems in school, tiered systems of support to support our students, uh, no matter where they are uh, on that emotional-behavioral scale, um, and engaging in in practices and providing resources to districts to do that. I know you may have heard in the in the news. There's a lot of confusion around social-emotional learning, what it is and what it is not, and and uh, Kim Traverso is an expert in that area, so we will uh, we will help clarify that for you. Next slide, please. So our state level uh, vision and plan is uh, multifold. Um, as you know, there's a significant amount of funding going into school districts through the American Rescue Plan. Um, we've identified a number of priority areas that that those funds are happening in, um, and just to give you a sense of that, we have some some of our smaller School districts are getting, you know, maybe tens of thousands of dollars, but our larger urban school districts are getting in the area of 90 to 100 million dollars to work on all of this. uh, All of this work, both learning acceleration, um, certainly academic renewal um, based on instructions lost uh, when schools have gone remote. We've done a number of studies uh, over the over looking at the last school year, and it's indicating that um, students, regardless of of their uh, race, regardless of their uh, of their academic stature, um, students who were learning remotely um, lost more ground than students who were, who were learning in person. So that's considerable. So right now the state law requires that, student, that schools provide uh, in-person learning. There really is no option for remote learning, except in certain circumstances, certainly when students are quarantining, uh, you know, and and students who may have social, emotional, behavioral, or physical needs that would keep them home, that, that remote learning is on a case-by-case basis. But by and large, um, there isn't any large-scale opportunity for remote learning, which, which you know, in this case, uh, social, emotionally and academically is a good thing. Um, and so we, and we'll talk some more about that. Um, we're working on increasing technology uh, for staff, um, impacting the digital digital divide, that's equipping families with broadband, equipping families with devices uh, to assist their children in uh, in being able to to do the work that's necessary. Um, Family engagement is a big part of our work as well and and continuing to build uh, safe and healthy schools, both through uh, school climate and school environment, welcoming schools, but also through providing uh, supports for HVAC, we're uh, upgrading schools to make sure that the air quality um, is is up to par, especially during during the pandemic. So uh, next slide please. So again, uh, the, the goals, our goals that we're working on are aligned with our priorities. Um, Commissioner Russell Tucker uh, often talks about what she refers to as her big audacious goal, and that is making sure that every school building uh, in the state has has the resources necessary and the supports necessary to provide comprehensive behavioral health support in the district and, and you all are certainly a big part of that as are our behavioral health providers in the state uh, and a number of a number of additional partnerships we conducted a number of, of surveys of districts to get to understand their needs um, we will be uh, rolling out a pilot program to, to look at some implementation uh, of some of the behavioral health supports to see if we can um, work toward scaling those up, um, you know, over the next couple of years. Uh, And Connecticut Children's, I have to thank uh, Jane Baird and her and that team at Connecticut Children's who uh, who are working with us in that endeavor and helping us evaluate some of that behavioral health implementation um, going forward. So thanks to them. Um, With that, I'd like to uh, turn it over to Kim Traverso, my colleague who's going to help us understand exactly what social emotional learning is uh, in Connecticut and beyond, and some of the work that's happening around that. So, uh, thank you for your time, and Kim.
2: Thank you, John. Hi, everyone, and thank you for having us, and also thank you so much for everything that you do during this extraordinary time. I'm gonna talk a little bit about social emotional learning, which is also called SEL. And I'm also going to give you an idea of what it is, but also what it is not. And we are then going to just go into briefly about what is Connecticut State Department of Education's blueprint on SEL. So SEL is not critical race theory. And I already saw in the Q&A a question in regards to that. And I can't really go into detail because of the limited time, but I do want you to know that there is a difference. And I am going to show you a slide later on um, around equity and what that aligns to in SEL work. The other thing, another myth is that it's touchy-feely only, and that it also is addressing kiddos who have behavioral issues. And that's truly not the case. What it is is really about executive functioning skills. Um, Overcoming challenges and building resilience um, and developing positive coping strategies. And so when we think about the integration of SEL into our uh, schools, we're talking about K through uh, 12 education and really think about whole child success. And how does that help build the building blocks necessary for our students to thrive? And, and with that being said, is we're looking at college and career readiness. We're looking at academic learning, but we're also looking at personal growth. So we're looking at all of those things. And now I know that we are talking about students, but we also are looking at adult SEL as well. And I will mention that on one slide. So I don't know if anyone really knows or not, but um, Connecticut actually has a definition, um, Public Act 19-166, actually is a um, act concerning school climate. So if you take a moment to just read through that. So as you can see, what I really like about this definition is that it's not just children, it's about adults as well. The other piece that I really like is that it's aligned to the Collaborative um, for Academic Social-Emotional Learning, which is CASEL. And they are um, have five competencies that they address. And in those five competencies, so if you look at the left side of the wheel, you'll see self-aware, self-management. That's really about the intra-personnel, right? And how do we develop and grow that area? If you look at the green area, It actually is the interpersonal. So it's looking at how do we uh, develop those skill sets around social awareness and relationship skills. And lastly, the yellow area is about responsible decision-making and how these decisions can impact self and others, which is again, that orange and green area. And putting all these skills together, again, is around uh, the goal is college and career readiness. Next slide, please. So why does SEL work matter? Well, there's tons of research out there. And one is that it's around the improvement, uh, improving the outcomes of our students in post-secondary. And I go one step further. When we looked at this research, we also looked at persistence. So yes, they're going on to post-secondary, but are they staying? And the research is showing that they're staying. So we're talking about two year, four year technical schools and, and kids are actually staying in those programs and completing them. The second piece is improved attitudes about self and others. And this is really about a connection to the school. Um, they feel like they're a part of the school community, and that's critical. Increased academic engagement and performance, positive climate, uh, I'm sorry, positive classroom behaviors. Now think about these positive classroom behaviors, and that improves our school discipline data. It also talks about decreasing absenteeism, which then is again, going back to that increased engagement in school and connection to school, and then decrease in emotion and and, and emotional. And when I talk about emotional, it's really about being able to manage and have the, the coping mechanisms to manage stress or emotional outbursts and being able to navigate that Um, In developing those skills, we also found in this research, though, that teachers who possess social emotional uh, competencies stay in the classroom longer have less burnout and their emotional wellness is also. um, higher, so this is really great things, but I don't want to make it sound like this is really easy. What I do want you to understand is that our, our students um, have in our and our adults in our buildings have experienced grief and loss, sickness, intensified challenges, food insecurities, homelessness, and other traumas. Um, having to transition back is a complicated affair. Students have to interact with other students all of a sudden uh, in person. They have to handle conflict. They are transitioning about it they're transitioning from grade levels but they're also sometimes transitioning from a whole entire different school um and how do they navigate their way through that so thinking about also one thing that they were doing when they were doing remote learning was that they were having these brain breaks you know they had a time out now they're in class full time so the question is how do we maneuver that and make those adjustments for for them and help them get through these adjustments and one thing is for sure is that we know that we have to build a foundation of trust uh, with our families and our students, and that we have to also make sure that we pay attention to their emotional well being and also getting them back into their routines and understanding what the expectations are. Next slide. So I'm going to move along here and talk about. What, how are we executing this uh, statewide? And so these are six steps. There's a lot more work around this, but these are the core of the six steps that we took. So one is the statewide land, landscape scan, which is the survey. So we have over 200 districts in the state of Connecticut. And in those districts, we, uh, we sent out the survey and we had about a 67% response rate, which is not too bad. Um, but what we were asking really was, how is your thing, what are you doing around SEL? You know, what's the great work that you're doing around SEL? What are some emerging trends and concerns that you have? Um, and so we gathered all this data and this was basically our first way of um, systemically collecting data to understand what is happening statewide. And then in that data analysis, two things really uh, stood out. One was, that districts wanted a universal screener. And number two is we have something called the social emotional components and they are um, K through three and they wanted to have grades four through 12. So those were the two major things that stuck, um, stood out for us. And so what we did was we actually uh, did some research. Um, we actually had uh, vendors come out and uh, write proposals and we, actually decided on the Devereaux Student Strength Assessment System, which is a uh, called the DESA. And it's the DESA Mini and also a supplement um, assessment as well. And the reason why we decided on this on the DESA is because it was research and um, uh, it's reliable, it was valid, but also it was done in multiple settings. It was done with multiple demographics. It actually um, was in multiple languages. And also there was an equity lens um, uh, inside um, the actual assessment. And not only is the equity lens, but it also was aligned to the castle, And that was important because as you know, that is part of our um, definition. So moving along, then we said, okay, let's actually um, make sure that we take care of adults in the building as well. So. We also introduced the um, Educator Social Emotional Reflection and Training, and so that has not started yet, but that is going to come out um, probably sometime in the spring. And then next is that we did work on these components. Now the Social Emotional Components for 4 through 12 really is about the integration of social emotional content into the lessons and helping teachers and educators um, be able to do that well. And that will be coming out also next spring. The other thing is that we have a wealth of information on our website called the Connecticut SEL Learning Hub. And I would recommend that you go there. It's for families and for educators. um, And it's really about providing social emotional well-being. And the last thing is the webinars and resources for staff and family. A wealth of webinars have been uh, done uh, starting uh, back when COVID actually hit. But these are incredible uh, webinars because they really have student voice, they have educator voice, they have family voice, and um, they, they have leadership voice. So we get a really good perspective of what is holistically happening out there and what needs to happen out there. And lastly, we can't do this in, alone. We are not. We definitely are not functioning in silos. Um, My my boss, John, is actually working, I mean, with the Department of Public Health, we're working with uh, DCF, we're working with the behavioral health providers, we're working with community-based organizations, and we're also working with families to leverage um, resources so that we can help the state of Connecticut. Next slide, please. So screening, I just want to just go into a little bit more detail about the decimini. One is, is that it is an early identification tool. So if you're thinking of multi-tiered systems of support, it's at the universal level. level, So all students will get it. Um, It actually helps us build um, or our districts build on data analysis and we don't just use that data. There's other pieces of data that we include so that we can make an informed decision. So for example. We may look at chronic absenteeism data, uh, school discipline data, and other pieces of data like surveys that they may also do like school climate surveys. The other piece is, what is it? So it is very brief, it's only eight minutes. And um, it really gives you a snapshot of what actually um, is happening with our students. But then it also is systemic. So if we're doing, if we're rolling this out district wide, what is the data telling us? If you're rolling it out in your whole school, what is your school saying? So now we have to identify what the need is and then address that need by what interventions and supports we're going to provide. And lastly is this is administered uh, three times a year. So we do it in the fall, uh, mid-year, January, and then at the end, why? Because we wanna have, again, going back to that progress monitoring piece, we really want to make sure that we are making the right adjustments based on um, whatever interventions we're deciding to use. But moreover is we want to actually be able to um, look at patterns, look at frequency of these patterns, and then also then make uh, decisions about where we're gonna go, but then what is the actual outcome going to be? And once we look at that outcome, we look at um, sustainability. So remember, I said earlier that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about equity, so can you go to the next slide, please? And equity, so let's just go through um, a short brief what it is. So equity is fair and just institutional policy and practices. Access is really about the full participation without barriers, and inclusion is a a sense of belonging and being heard and valued. putting these all together under SEL. So basically what I'm trying to say here is SEL is not gonna work if these things aren't working in your school district. So we have to look at our policy to make sure that all students um, have fair and just um, policies and practices that are aligned and that work for everybody. We have to look at access. So for example, are there any barriers for female students to take STEM or computer science? Are there any barriers for AP courses being offered to students of color? Um, because the criteria may be so um, outrageous. Um, is inclusion, are we saying that we do not have, um, do, our, do we actually listen to our students and do we have uh, family voice? And also when we talk about family voice, we really need to think about the, the voice that is marginalized. We have a lot of louder voices that are there sort of dictate what happens in the district, but we have to figure out a way to make sure that all voices are heard and so that that voice is also at the table so that everyone, again, um, is is getting equity. Um, next slide, please. So this is our, so next I'm going to just talk a little bit about coherence and then we're going to be pretty much wrapping it up. And um, this is about The steps So these are the core features i definitely I know this is a busy slide so please. um, I am not going to go through every single line, but I just thought you might want to have it. Um, So the first step is building that foundation, and so it has to have an alignment to the strategic operating plan. And it also have to you have to conduct a resource mapping to find out where your gaps are and where you need to like build capacity. And then number two is strength of adult SEL. so we're looking at professional learning technical assistance and also coaching. Um, Thirdly is promoting SEL for students and families and really making that through line between home and school and community and making sure that again, those voices are at the table. Um, And then continuous improvement, which is critical. So basically looking at where we are, where do we wanna go and how are we getting there? And that is about our integrated systems of support. And then if you go to the next slide, um, yep, and I am going to wrap it up. So if you go to the next slide, I know that this is uh, very busy. And I just wanted you to see that our leaders are saying, we have initiative fatigue. And um, when they're saying this, this is really about uh, restorative um, practices, SEL, trauma-informed care, but how do we take all these initiatives that are working in silos and pulling them together under multi-tiered systems of support so that it's under one umbrella. And that is really what we're talking about when we're saying moving in the same direction and having a coordinated effort. Next slide. And then this slide is, I'm going to go through just pretty quickly. It's about systems approaches. Um, We are looking at um, data. So we're trying to be very intentional about what we're looking at and what we're assessing. We're using that screener again to have and design targeted supports. And then of course, going back to that progress monitoring, which I don't have to go into detail. And all of this actually is about fidelity of implementation and really looking at how our system is working and then making the necessary adjustments so that we are sustainable. And lastly, I just wanna leave you with this question. Where do you see yourself, um, see the connection between the work that you do every day in supporting SEL work in our schools, thank you.
3: Thank you, uh, Kim. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's Dr. Salazar. I could not join earlier, uh, but uh, you know we have uh, over 190 people that have joined this conversation, and I, I appreciate uh, uh, John's commentary and, and uh, also Kim and and well, actually both Johns. Um, So if we have, we have plenty of of time for questions. Uh, I have a a comment from uh, Dr. Rob Ketter. Thank you, Kim and John for presenting how the state is looking to implement such important public health measures to support the emotional and behavioral health of our kids. Uh, So really I echo that uh, sentiment from Dr. Ketter to both of you this is a troubled time in, in, in our midst. And I think it's important, very important what you're doing. Um, listen, I don't see any other questions right now, which is rather surprising. And usually, there there are fifty questions for John Schreiber immediately. So uh, people are very quiet this morning, and I know there are one hundred ninety. Maybe they can't use the chat or the Q and A. Um,
2: Dr. Salazar, it's Liz. Uh, we actually do have quite a few questions. I okay, so I, I can I'm read them. them. Okay, go ahead and read them. Like, <laughs> um, so. Uh, question that came in. Thank you again for a very informative session. Can you address the question of vitamin D levels and how they impact COVID infection? Are there studies to justify vitamin D level testing or supplements as a routine?
0: Uh, So it's a great question. Um, Certainly vitamin D overall for immunologic integrity is important, but I am not aware of data showing that it prevents COVID or treats COVID. It's good to be healthy and it's good to maintain appropriate levels of vitamin D and so but that's just a routine um, effort i'm I'm not aware of data showing it have as efficacy against COVID.
2: Okay, Um, and for Kim and john at least in my school district sel has become the newest CRT school board debate, how do we brand this important and necessary initiative in a way that helps to avoid political pitfalls.
1: Go ahead, Kim. I'll, I'll just I'll just say that we we are hoping for you to be able to use this presentation to, to be able to explain exactly what we're talking about with social emotional learning and the fact that we're doing that the assessment the social emotional learning assessment in schools um, that we're really it, we're really looking at strengths what what strengths do students have what can teachers build on in terms of getting students to be more resilient. Um, helping students to, you know, the questions on the assessment are things like, how often did they persist when they were struggling? How often did they help a peer and things like that? So Kim?
2: Yeah, John is right on uh, point. And the only thing I would add to that is that we've had those conversation with districts and what we are recommending and what districts are doing are having um, like town hall meetings with uh, their community and families and really, talking about these kind of questions that are being asked around CRT, and then really dispelling those myths about what SEL is, and then actually describing also um, how SEL will be used in the school and also how the universal screener will help with that. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Schreiber, are the rapid antibody tests good for picking up the um, AmeriCon?
0: I don't know the data on that. Um, Certainly the rapid antigen tests are less reliable than PCR um, by some. And so they're good for screening a classroom or a school. uh, For individual screening before surgery or before um, uh, travel, PCR is what's really uh, much more sensitive. So I don't know the data on antigen testing. I do know Quest announced that their PCR does detect Omicron.
3: The question here, I can actually see them now. Uh, it, are the SEL measures being in, employed at private school districts or is it only public schools? Kim? Um,
2: public schools right now.
3: Okay, so only public schools, maybe a, a format can be employed in the private schools. And that would, that's a great, great question too. Follow-up. Dr.
1: Salazar, just just to be clear, so so the state is rolling out our own. The DESA is our rollout of the Social Emotional Learning Assessment, but other districts are doing their own uh, assessments as well. So it's 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 not. Uh, private schools may be doing their own Social Emotional Learning assessments as well.
3: Great, uh, John. A question about uh, the booster vaccine for uh, 16 and 17 year olds. Um, what what do you know about uh, when that would be approved for that age group?
0: and Pfizer have put into the FDA to move that age for boosting downwards. I do not believe it's approved yet, but I think it's imminent. So I anticipate very soon in the next few weeks, we'll be able to boost uh, below 18 by a couple of years.
3: Uh, Another question. School nurses and administrators spend a lot of time contact tracing even after hours and on weekends when students test positive. Since the number of positive tests are on the rise, is there any plan to provide support to schools like hiring outside contact tracers? With vaccination available to all school age students, now will that change the responsibility of schools to contract trace? So, this is about staffing and who makes the phone calls for Kim and John.
1: Thank you. There are a couple of things in place. Number one, uh, we have a contract with the Connecticut Association of Schools uh, who have contact tracers that can assist. Number one. Number two, we've rolled out something called Screen and Stay, uh, which is an opportunity for students. Uh, under certain circumstances who have been exposed to a case in in the school building, in the classroom or in on the bus, uh, for those students to be able to come back to school um, instead of quarantining, as long as uh, their parents are checking their symptoms on a daily basis. And if they're symptom-free, they can continue to participate in school.
3: Thank you. Uh, John, uh, how soon after the patient had an exposure to COVID they, can they get their first, or in some cases, their second dose of vaccine? So
0: if they're exposed, uh, you you would follow that uh, exposure uh, measurement in terms of when they would get tested or get sick. And if if it's negative, then you would go ahead and boost whenever the appropriate time was for their boosting, three or four weeks, depending on which vaccine you got. So it really shouldn't interfere unless you got clinically ill and developed COVID, in which case we like to wait at least a couple of weeks after all symptoms are gone. So uh, I think that would be my answer to that.
3: And also for you, John, uh, from Larry Serzer, and we only have time for a couple more questions. Should we worry that Omicron spread so quickly during the warmer weather months in South Africa? Does the low morbidity compared to Delta in a population that has previously been ravaged by HIV suggest that it will be a less severe infection?
0: You know, we don't know, but it's it's certainly anecdotally. Um, the South, Afri- South African physicians so far have said they're not seeing a lot of very sick hospitalizations in the provinces that are being overcome with Omicron. So I don't know the answer to that. It's certainly promising and hopeful that it might not have any increased virulence. And if it had less virulence, that would actually be uh, terrific. So we'll have to see how this plays out. In the meantime, of course, we need to stay the course and uh, be cautious and get immunized.
3: Now, there's a study, this is from Andrea, from a study in Germany that studied, uh, it must be antibody levels and found no mortality with levels of 50 and reduced severity with levels over 30. Any comments on that?
0: You know, I, I'm not aware of that particular study, but clearly as your antibody titers go up, you are much, much, much less likely to get seriously ill and end up in the hospital and die. So that, that link is very firm with neutralizing antibody, and I think we know that as factual. And so, again, the more neutralizing antibody you can get on you, in you, the less likely you're going to get very sick from this virus. So I'm, I'm pleased. that I'm, I know that's panning out in the literature, and I, that German study would support that.
3: Yeah, actually, Andre corrected us. the vitamin, vitamin D levels. That makes more sense, you know, over 15 and 30. So it's vitamin D and mortality.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, again, if your your immune system's intact, you're going to do better. And vitamin D is a piece of that. But I, I would hesitate to say it's unique to COVID. I'm sure if you looked at other illnesses and you were deficient in vitamin D, you also might have other more morbidity. So I don't know if it's COVID specific, but certainly it's good to have appropriate levels of vitamin D on board to maintain your health and you'll probably do better with any illness.
3: And then one, this is the last question uh, it's it sort of I'm a question or a statement. Uh, can you elaborate further on your comment that requirements for participation in AP courses are outrageously high and they're unfairly exclude students, a solution? Uh, I'm Not sure you can answer that very quickly, John or Kim, but uh, that'll, that'll be the last question to answer. John, do you want me to take that question?
1: Yep,
2: go ahead quickly, please. Um, quickly, yes. Uh, so AP courses, um, we are trying to work um, with AP potential, uh, which is a whole other outside um, agency or organization. And what we're trying to do is get more of our students who are students of color and female students to actually participate in AP courses and removing the sort of like the made up criteria or policies in schools around that and really opening that door of opportunity
3: for more students to be able to take those courses. Great. Thank you, uh, John and Kim and, and uh, John Schreiber and John Prestonelli. So we have double the double J Johnson and Johnson today. So that's usually Appreciate everyone joining us. We had a great participation this morning.
0: One announcement, Juan, before you go, okay. everyone goes. So on the 17th, ask the experts will be Dr. El-Shabib and Dr. Tori talking about an update, but also specifically on Missy. And the inflammatory uh, disorder that kids get post-COVID. So that's December 17th. You won't see me until January 7th. So, happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Holidays to everyone, uh, and uh, be safe. Thank you.
3: Thank you, John. Take care, everyone. Be well.